Support for this podcast comes from NBC. Last year, the disappearance of Flight 828 became TV's biggest mystery and made Manifest TV's number one new drama. January 6th, Manifest returns with a mind-blowing new season. Get up to speed for the new season with Manifest, the official podcast. Your one stop for all things Manifest with show creator Jeff Rake. Listen or subscribe to Manifest, the official podcast, wherever you get your podcasts. And don't miss the season two premiere of Manifest, Monday, January 6th on NBC. Welcome to Insight. I'm Charlie, and with me today is Allie. How are you, Allie? I'm doing well on this cold and rainy winter's day. How are you? I'm good. It's, you know, a warm and rainy summer day for me. I know that upcoming we have a meetup that you will be at in San Francisco. Yes, I'll be at the Keystone on 4th on Saturday, July 15 at 2 p.m., I'll be there with Eileen and Colleen from Misconduct and Esther from Once Upon a Crime. We're going to have giveaways and merch and it'll just, it'll just be fun. So if you're in the San Francisco area or you can get there on July 15th, we definitely recommend you go say hi to Allie. I will be uh, sitting here in Kansas City very pregnant, so I will miss everybody. But, but hopefully I'll be able to make some of the podcast meetups later this year. And I can FaceTime you in because it won't be a ridiculous time like it was when we had the Sydney one. Oh, that's true. We're actually only two hours time difference instead of, what, 16. Tonight's story is about a woman named Misty Witherspoon. She shot and killed her husband while he slept on the couch in 2005. Now, Misty claims it was an accident, and she has an unlikely ally in her pleas of innocence, her husband's entire family. So let's start at the beginning with how Misty and Quinn met. Misty Witherspoon was born Misty Keller in 1973 in Mooresville, North Carolina. She spent her whole life in Mooresville, growing up as a Jehovah's Witness. At some point in her teen years, she left the church. She also left school. She dropped out at the age of 17. Also at 17, she met Quinn Witherspoon, who was 19 at the time. Although they both grew up in Mooresville, they didn't meet until one night she was out with friends, he was out with friends, and they started dating shortly after they met. They broke up a few times in their four-year courtship, but they did eventually marry in 1994. Quinn has been described as helpful and kind. He, the type of guy that would drop whatever he was doing to go help someone else with any task if they needed something done. Since he was a little boy, he had wanted to become a police officer. So after he finished his criminal justice degree, a year after he and Misty married, he joined the police force in a nearby city. Misty's been described as friendly with an almost always happy exterior. In 1998, Misty and Quinn had a daughter together and they were fantastic parents together. Misty worked in a nearby factory while Quinn excelled as a police officer. Three years later, they had twins, and around that time, Quinn was promoted to a canine officer, and he was paired with a dog named Tank. As is the usual when not on duty, Tank lived at the house with the family. With the promotion and the extra demands of the kids and the extra daycare for three kids, they decided that they could afford for Misty to start being a stay-at-home mom. 
At some point, they bought a bigger house with a backyard pool in a nicer neighborhood. And as a bonus, the house was right next door to Quinn's parents, whom both Misty and Quinn were incredibly close with. There were some issues with their math, however. Quinn's promotion was definitely a step up, for sure. But adding the expenses of two more kids, dropping Misty's income, and adding in a much more expensive house, there wasn't that big of a step up. Quinn took overtime where he could get it. He moonlighted as a security guard at times. Even on his days off, he would work with a relative doing landscape and yard work. Misty tried bringing in some extra money as she could. She ran a direct sales business, a company called Avon. I don't know if you have Avon over in Australia. Yeah, we do. And she would also clean some houses on the side. But they also did something that a lot of young families do. They financed a nicer car than they could comfortably afford. They financed a camper with this idea that, well, camping's a pretty cheap vacation. While Misty was nickel and diming with bargain shopping... She was also buying things she didn't need. She had a lot of clothing. She had a lot of makeup. Some have portrayed this as beyond the, I don't know, usual bits of overspending uh, that, you know, I know Allie and I are both prone to too many to-go coffees in our lives. No. (laughs) No, not us. This was really stepping over the line into almost compulsive over-shopping. And they were getting deeper and deeper into debt and... They just kept digging. Eventually, when their oldest child went to school, Misty looked for some more steady work outside the home, but something that would keep her flexible for the twins who were still at home. The Witherspoon family were members of Whitman Park Baptist Church, and that's the church Quinn grew up in. And the church was fairly small. It had something like 60 to 70 members, and that made it a tight-knit congregation. Everyone was either related to or friends with the Witherspoon family. Misty was hired for a couple of hundred dollars a month to clean the church. Quinn and his dad were both deacons for the church, and Quinn had been elected treasurer of the church. But because he worked pretty much all the time, they gave Misty the power to sign checks and essentially help Quinn with his treasurer duties. And it seemed their additional work started paying off. I mean, they weren't exactly catching up, but they weren't sinking further into debt either. But about a year after taking over the treasurer's duties in September of 2004, the pastor noticed a discrepancy. The reporting on the amount of the discrepancy varies, but 18,000 is the conservative side, but it could have been closer to 30,000. Misty had been using church funds to pay her household bills for a good part of the year. So instead of just bringing in an extra 200 a month for the church for janitorial services, she was actually taking 1,500 a month or more. Because she handled the finances of the household, Quinn didn't notice the sudden increase in income. Although truthfully, between their debt and Misty's shopping habit, it's likely it didn't make any noticeable changes to his own day-to-day life anyway. Rather than go to the police, the church met with the family and decided to handle it privately. Quinn cashed out some of his retirement savings to pay the church back, and it's also very possible his parents may have helped as well. Leading up to Quinn's death, there was a question mark about how much Quinn knew about their financial situation. According to his family, he knew things were bad and it wasn't hidden from him. The court documents showed that Quinn had gone to his captain to borrow money to make a mortgage payment. 
He went to the credit union about six months after the embezzling was discovered to discuss a credit card account he had, and they went over his credit report with him. Misty had opened credit cards and financing accounts that he had no idea about. He had her taken off his credit card and the spending limit reduced to try to stop the flow of money out of the house. A friend of Misty's would later testify that Misty would turn the ringer off on the house phone and carry it around all day with her to dodge the creditors' calls and to make sure Quinn didn't catch on just how bad things were getting. It feels like, on one hand, the church theft was big enough of a wake-up call that Quinn started monitoring things more, but on the other hand, Misty was still trying to keep some things from him. This will essentially become the state's motive in the case. Before we go any further, we're going to take a quick break for a word from our sponsor. We'd like to welcome back ZipRecruiter this week. It's important to find great talent, but it can also be hard. With ZipRecruiter, you can post your job to 100 plus job sites with one click. Then their powerful technology efficiently matches the right people to your job better than anyone else. And that's why ZipRecruiter is different. Unlike other job sites, ZipRecruiter doesn't depend on candidates finding you, it finds them. In fact, over 80% of jobs posted on ZipRecruiter get a qualified candidate in just 24 hours. No juggling emails or calls to your office. You can screen, rate, and manage candidates all in one place with ZipRecruiter's easy-to-use dashboard. Find out today why ZipRecruiter has been used by businesses of all sizes to find the most qualified job candidates with immediate results. And right now, my listeners can post jobs on ZipRecruiter for free. That's right, free. Just go to ZipRecruiter.com site. That's ZipRecruiter.com S-I-G-H-T. One more time to try it for free, go to ZipRecruiter.com site. On September 13th, 2005, so we're at one year after the embezzlement had come out, the Witherspoons were preparing for a camping trip they were taking the next day with Quinn's family. After Quinn dropped the oldest child off at school, he went home to help Misty finish packing, getting the camper ready, cleaned out, all of that stuff, loaded up for the trip. They'd really been looking forward to this trip. With camping being about the only vacation they could afford, with their level of debt and the money they owed on the camper itself. And they were going with Quinn's family, which is another thing they were looking forward to. Quinn had worked the night before, so after the twins went down for their afternoon nap, Quinn laid down on the living room sofa to take a nap himself before it was time to go do the after-school pickup. At 1.36 p.m. while Quinn slept, Misty called the power company. They owed nearly $900 on their bill, which was obviously mostly arrears and late fees. That morning, a final notice was received in the mail, and their power was going to be turned off the next day. Misty called, trying to ask for more time to pay the bill before they shut it off. And our listeners who have been in this situation know the drill. You call, you give a promise of when you'll pay, and they'll extend your deadline. Unfortunately for Misty, they weren't going to take a payment promise this time. Misty had done this before. This time they said no, and they required her to pay that day to prevent the electricity from being shut off. I believe they didn't require the entire bill, but half of it or whatever. But she didn't have the money. She didn't have any spare money to put towards this bill. 
If Misty called while Quinn was sleeping on purpose with the hopes of keeping this latest financial crisis under wraps, it was clearly not going to work. He would notice when their electricity was turned off, or if they had to ask his parents for the money to pay it, or even if they had to cancel their camping trip just to save that money to put towards the bill. This was, according to prosecutors and Misty herself, a breaking point for her. Friends and family had said she had recently lost weight, become more withdrawn in the few months prior to this, and she was always an outgoing, bubbly, externally happy person, and that was starting to chip away leading up to this day. Now, what happened next has two versions from Misty, and they both start the same way. After getting off the phone with the power company, Misty was upset, but decided to just keep on her to-do list and keep packing for the camping trip. She went to the bathroom to look for lotion to pack, and while reaching into a basket for it, she knocked Quinn's service weapon to the floor. It sounds like he had taken off his entire belt with the gun still in the holster and put it up on the shelf, and this was his common practice. When police arrived later, they did find his belt on the floor. The first story Misty told police was that the gun fell out of the holster when it hit the floor. Worried that the drop to the floor had damaged the gun in some way, she carried it to Quinn, where he was asleep on his stomach on the couch, so that he could look over it before she put it back. As she walked across the room, she slipped on a children's book that was left on the floor. She stumbled, fell into Quinn, and somehow pulled the trigger, shooting Quinn in the back of the head. She called 911 and said they needed to get out there quickly and she immediately explained that she fell while holding the gun and accidentally shot her husband. Now it was too late to save Quinn. He was already dead. So when the police arrived, they cleared everyone out of the house, including the twins. Immediately at the scene, there were some odd things. Quinn was lying on the couch on his stomach. He had his arms crossed under the pillow and his head on the pillow. His face was facing the back of the couch. Now, it looked exactly as though he had been napping when he was shot, except they couldn't find the shell casing. His gun was right ejecting, so they assumed the shell casing would be down towards his feet, based on where Misty said she was when the gun went off. It wasn't until they moved his body that they found the shell casing, and it was up by the pillow. Misty went to the station to give a statement that afternoon while the family watched the kids. She gave her full statement and repeated again the same story about slipping on the book. While Quinn was an officer in a neighboring city, the officers in this city knew him, of course, and they knew Misty. They didn't really suspect anything was amiss immediately, or if they did, they pushed those thoughts away. They knew this family. So they sent Misty home to be with the kids and released the house as a crime scene so the family was able to go in and start the what I imagine is a very difficult process of cleaning the scene. That included disposing almost immediately of the couch, of course. I imagine this is the first thing they pulled out of there. But after Misty left, the investigators were discussing the case a little bit, and those little doubts they had individually started to surface in their conversation. You know, what was up with that shell casing being on the left and not on the right? And... Didn't the angle make it seem like his head would have been positioned a little differently? And what are the odds the shot would have hit him at all, let alone in a spot that would be immediately fatal? And honestly, why did a trained and conscientious police officer 
leave a loaded gun with the safety off where his kids could have come across it. These things were just not adding up for them. The next day, they asked Misty to walk through a reenactment of what happened and to allow them to videotape it. As they watched her try to walk through what happened, the doubts were confirmed. Not only did she struggle a bit to reenact the sequence and make it seem natural, she also couldn't do it in any way that made the trigger pull make sense. How did her finger slip into the trigger guard, pull hard enough for the gun to go off if she was just carrying it across the room? It's not the easiest thing to make a gun go off. As you said, you need to put pressure against the trigger, a fair bit of pressure to make the gun go off. Right. Did, why was she walking with her finger on the trigger anyway? Unless you're exactly. intending to shoot someone, you don't walk around with your finger on a gun trigger. And I don't think you need to be very gun smart to just know that. So they had suspicions, but the case needed more investigating. Quinn and Misty were known to be happy together. They were devoted parents. They made sure they went on regular dates and neither were having an affair. Quinn's family seemed to have no suspicions at all and they rallied around Misty and the kids. And then they talked to a friend of Misty's who said there were some rumours around that Misty had gotten into trouble with money at the church a year ago. Because the church chose to deal with it privately, there was no police report about it. But the police interviewed the pastor, they found out the details, and they started diving into the finances of Misty and Quinn. As you already know, it wasn't a pretty picture. They took the next step. They looked at Quinn's life insurance. He had about 300000 in life insurance policies. Though according to court documents, the amount actually received between life insurances, government death benefits for the survivors... And what was left in Quinn's 401k was actually more like 200000 Now, with a story that didn't make sense, we have a woman deeply in debt and about to tell her husband yet again they were in deep trouble financially. And then we have a large insurance payout that would have bailed her out of all this. They made Misty write a written statement and then they interviewed her two more times. The second interview occurred on October 3rd, and it lasted about three hours. Misty was told that they were about to wrap up their investigation, but had just a few more things to ask her and clear up. They started just by asking her a little bit more about herself, her life growing up, her life with Quinn. I think they referred to it as the rapport building phase in a legal brief. They were just kind of warming her up conversationally, and they eventually got to the day of Quinn's shooting, and Misty gave more or less the same story. A few details were off, but nothing big, and it's actually very normal for details to change ever so slightly with retellings. The lead detective started bringing up some of the inconsistencies with Misty, such as there was no footprint on the book. He played her the full audio of her 911 call, which included 15 seconds with no one talking. And during those 15 seconds, you can hear doors being open and things falling to the floor. Obviously, the police were wondering if this is the point when Misty started staging the bathroom to look like Quinn's gun accidentally fell to the floor. They also showed her some crime scene photos to point out the inconsistencies they saw with his head placement and the blood flow. Also a concern was that some of the blood appeared to be more dry than you would have expected had she actually called the police right away, like she claimed. Misty just continued to insist she did not shoot Quinn on purpose. At one point, she asked if she needed to get a lawyer. She was told she was not under arrest. 
So she asked to leave to go home with her children. They had been staying with Quinn's parents at this point. And she was told as she left that they needed her to fill in some of the blanks here. And would she come back for another interview just to discuss these inconsistencies? And she said yes. And Misty did come back just two days later on October 5. The start of the story was the same. She was upset about the bills and was upset that she was going to have to tell Quinn that their camping trip wasn't going to happen because they needed all their spare money to pay the overdue bill. She even went to the bathroom for lotion in this version. And she knocked the gun down, except this time she said she wasn't worried about the gun being damaged. She looked at the gun and saw a sign. She knew the way out of this mess and that was suicide. She picked up the gun and sat out on the porch swing, thinking about the situation she found herself in. She got up and went to the workshop in the back of the house and planned on shooting herself there where Quinn and the twins were less likely to hear. She was trying to build up the nerve when Quinn's canine dog, Tank, he came up to her and he kept nudging her. She went back to the porch swing, but Tank was being persistent, so she went back inside. Inside, she was standing behind the couch where Quinn was sleeping, and she tried to decide what to do. She was alternating between putting the gun to her head and praying. She was thinking that if or she was thinking that if after the embezzlement, and after he found out she had those credit cards he didn't know about, and after he had to borrow from his boss to pay the mortgage, if she was worried, this might be it. This might be the time he decided he just couldn't forgive her anymore. You can imagine in this moment, whether you believe her that she was contemplating suicide or if you think she was contemplating murder, that she was feeling trapped in the situation and that there wasn't an easy path out. As to how the gun got from pointing to her head to pointing to Quinn's, Misty said she put the gun to her head and she started to squeeze the trigger. She felt suddenly weak in her legs and instinctively put both hands on the back of the couch to brace herself. The family had two cats who liked to chase each other, and when her hands went to the back of the couch, they ran across her hands and startled her, and the gun went off. Now this explains why her hand was on the trigger. She was intending to shoot someone, being herself. It also explains why the shell casing was by his head and not his feet. Well, sort of. She was still not admitting that she moved Quinn's head, so it didn't explain the shell casing being under his arms. Misty said she stood in shock for a few moments and realised what she had done. She had shot her husband and he was dead, so she put the gun to her own head again. Before she could pull the trigger, she heard one of the twins stir over the baby monitor and because she was a person who looked for signs, she saw this as a sign, that she couldn't leave her kids with no parents. She said she then walked around the couch to get to the phone after the gun fired and she picked up the shell casing after nearly stepping on it. It was still warm or hot, so she tossed it and it went towards Quinn's body. She then said she couldn't find the phone. As we know, because she was carrying it around, it was a cordless phone and it wasn't in the charging cradle. She had to look for it to call 911 and eventually found it under the love seat. At the end of the statement, Misty was arrested and charged with first-degree murder. So... A huge question hanging over this case is why Misty didn't just tell this initial story from the beginning. It doesn't sound any more or less plausible than the slipping story. It it actually, to me, sounds more plausible than slipping on the book. But the answer for the police is pretty obvious. 
that both stories were lies, but the suicide one explained the discrepancies that they had given her two days to think about before they interviewed her again. For Misty, her answer was that it was in the stigma. She was known for being outgoing, friendly, having it all together. A fair amount of their debt was from attempts to keep up appearances. Nice clothes for her, nice clothes for the kids, makeup, the camper, the car, the big house. Admitting she was in a dark place, that she had a dark moment, or had mental health issues was more than she could take. And that would be hard considering the the standing they had in their church, that she was admitting that she was having a problem. When they did have that outside perspective, people believing that they were the perfect family. Right, and that their faith was really strong, and this is showing a shaken faith. Exactly. And then she knew that admitting a suicide attempt could have her hospitalized, and that worried her that her children would be taken from her. So she decided to use a cover story to be able to hide a little longer the problems that she was having. In addition to the rest for murder, she was charged with multiple counts having to do with the church embezzlement. The church still did not opt to press charges, but a crime is a crime, even if the victim doesn't want to press charges. And while the state can and often does take the victim's feelings into consideration here, they don't have to. Also, in addition to those charges, Misty had credit cards in her sister's name. The total charges she eventually pled guilty to were 37 counts related to embezzlement and three related to identity theft. Misty pled guilty to the to these financial charges in April of 2007, in part to take responsibility for what she did. She didn't deny she did these things, but I also think part of it may be that she had a murder trial coming up. She was likely motivated to settle this one so she could focus on that one. Why the state went after her when she made restitution with the church already and her sister didn't want charges filed... Her attorney felt that this decision was an attempt to destroy her credibility going into her murder trial. In the process of all this, Misty was out on bond and she was supported by her family and by Quinn's family and their church family. Yes, that's right. Even through all of this, her church and her in-laws, they never believed the state's case. They believed Misty. They believed that it was an accident and that she wasn't guilty of first-degree murder. It was a burden of the prosecution that they would have to overcome. Because how do you tell a juror to believe you when you can't even convince the family of the victim? So as a juror, would you be swayed by this, the victim's family siding with the defendant? Look, I don't know because because of what we do with, with the podcast and, and reading so much true crime. I would like to think if I was on the jury, I would look at the evidence and decide from there But if I was just casually following the case online or in the news, it would have me questioning her guilt. Usually we hear the families of the victims holding that the defendant was guilty. Even after DNA evidence exonerates them, they still believe they're guilty because all they're hearing is from the prosecution and the police. And so all they're hearing is how they're so sure they got the right person. I would like to think that wouldn't sway me. Um, I'm curious what our listeners think, too, so I hope people will hop on social media and give us their thoughts on this. If the victim's family siding with the defendant would sway you in a case, whether as a juror or just as someone 
like you said, casually following the case. That's a great idea, actually. One of us will start a thread on in the Facebook group, and we'd love to hear all your thoughts. Although they believed Misty was innocent and they wanted her to serve no jail time, as the family of the victim, they approached the DA in January of 2007 and they asked for a deal for Misty, something that she would take. They did not want her to risk a life sentence. The DA suggested seven years and the family agreed. Misty also agreed, but then the DA soon rescinded the offer. The police departments, and we're talking about the ones investigating and the one Quinn worked for, they didn't approve. So the case went to trial on January 25, 2007. It's interesting to see anything from the trial or anything dealing with this trial because on the state side is just the audience is just full of police officers. And then on Misty's side, it's full of Quinn's family. And I can't even imagine what that was like for any of them to be dealing with this terrible situation. And it would be hard because the police department would know Misty's family and Quinn's family. I would say they would have had outings together, get-togethers. To be on such separate sides, it would be difficult for everyone. For the state's case, the medical examiner testified that... Quinn was shot from no more than six inches away, and he traced the trajectory of the bullet. Detectives had then used this information to recreate the crime scene, using a mannequin, wooden dowels to mark the trajectory, and a couch. They concluded that Misty could not have been standing where she said she was when the gun went off. Also, due to the blood flow at the scene, the detective testified that Quinn's head would have had to have been repositioned before police arrived, or else's blood ended up flowing uphill. The implication here is that Misty altered the position of Quinn's head in order to better match her accidental shooting story, and Misty maintained she never touched Quinn's body. Another point the state tried to make was through playing the 911 call. They said that Misty's first thing on that call was to tell her story that she was bringing the gun to her husband and it went off. The argument here is pretty clear that It seemed as though she was more concerned with getting her version of what happened out there rather than getting help for her husband. This is an odd argument for them to have made in court because in reality, the first thing she said on the 911 call is, you've got to get out here. So I don't know, this misrepresenting what the evidence right there in open court, I I don't know how things like that get by. There were also police officers who testified to her telling the story about slipping on the book that first day. And one, she repeated it to this story to him specifically multiple times on that day. And there she never varied on any of the details and pretty much kept the story verbatim. So the implication here is that it was fairly rehearsed, except when they questioned her later, she did change minor details. So who knows with that? There were some holes in Misty's version of events that came out in court, and the jury was allowed in open court to try out the Beretta. They were able to feel the resistance of the trigger, feel the pressure, similar to what Allie was saying about how much pressure you need to use to pull that trigger, and consider if a cat startling someone or a cat knocking into someone's hands could have caused them to accidentally squeeze hard enough to fire. A firearms instructor demonstrated for the jury how the gun comes out of the holster, which took at least two motions. So for it to have fallen out of the holster onto the bathroom floor, it would have meant that in addition to having his gun loaded, 
Quinn also left it loose in the holster and not snapped in. This would be very irresponsible gun handling, particularly as he had two toddlers in the home, and that was also unlike Quinn to be careless with his weapon. The defense was pretty simple. They stuck by Misty's second statement that this was actually a suicide attempt on her part, that through a series of events, it went wrong. They agreed the financial strain was behind this, only they argued it led to Misty to suicide, not murder. The defence challenged some of the state's findings. A forensic pathologist testified that he believed the shot was actually from two feet away, not six inches. A psychologist testified that due to Misty's severe depression and anxiety, there was no way Misty in that moment could have formed the intent to kill Quinn. And without intent, it couldn't be first degree murder. The other major challenge was to the demonstration with the mannequin and the couch. The couch used was not the couch from the home. Remember how the police released the crime scene that evening? Well, a family friend had helped remove the couch the day after Quinn's death. Police learnt this when they went to get the couch later as they began questioning Misty's story. And the couch wasn't just removed. It was broken up using a backhoe to make it easier to dispose of and was at a transfer station waiting for its final journey to the landfill. Now, police searched two truckloads of trash, but they couldn't find the sofa or any pieces of it for that matter. This means they had to use a similar couch. The defence argued that the compression of the couches and other wear and tear on the couch could have altered the results. Also, the mannequin head was female and smaller than Quinn's actual head. And Misty, well, she did not take the stand in her own defence. On July 16, 2007, the jury came back with a verdict. With Quinn's fellow police officers on one side of the room and Quinn's family on the other side of the room, the verdict was read. The jury found Misty guilty of first-degree murder and she was sentenced to life in jail with no possibility of parole. So how do you feel about this verdict? Was this an accident? Were they able to prove first degree? What are your thoughts? I don't know. There's a lot to me that points to more of an accident, more of a manslaughter type verdict. Yes, there were a lot of financial problems, but for what we know, he supported her and he wanted to make things work. And there wasn't any history of violence in the marriage. It's just the removal of the couch that leaves me slightly uneasy, but then again, I can understand why Missy would get rid of it. I definitely don't believe not guilty. I would have never found her not guilty, but first degree murder. I don't believe the state argued enough for me to come down on that side. So while I don't agree with the verdict, I don't necessarily disagree either. I'm the same way. I think the first degree murder charge was overcharging. I don't think they were able to prove the intent. I think Misty's story is just as plausible. I mean, this was a $900 electric bill. She had embezzled $20,000 a year before, and he stuck by her. And they had financial issues this entire time, and she he just kept sticking by her. So I don't think that one thing would be the last straw for him in the marriage. I can see her being completely overwhelmed. I mean, I... I remember being a kid and telling a lie and feeling completely overwhelmed that I was going to get caught and that things were going to fall apart. I mean, just imagine carrying that around all the time. So I don't know what happened, but I do think first degree murder was a reach. I think they should have charged her with something less. 
And I think she should have been convicted of something less. She was carrying around a loaded gun with her hand on the trigger near another human being. That was negligent at the very least. I mean, with what the family wanted with the seven years, I would accept that. I would think that would be a more fair sentence than life in prison. I often don't think life in prison without the possibility to parole is a fair sentence for people. I do believe in rehabilitation. And I think in this case, it was it's not a fair sentence at all for what happened. Agreed. Her attorney feels that she was largely convicted based on her stories changing. Basically, she lied once, so why? how do we know she's not lying again? And when she was confronted, her new story did fill in the gaps. So, I mean, that doesn't really mean the second story was untrue, but it's a pretty big hurdle for the defense to have gotten over. In 2009, Misty's appeal was denied. Her appeal was based on that demonstration, that quote-unquote experiment, as her defense called it, of the couch and the mannequin. But all three appellate judges agreed that the evidence was properly admitted into court and there was no error. Quinn and Misty's children live with Quinn's family and they visit their mother every other Saturday. And because I know our listeners, I will let you know what happened to Tank, Quinn's companion. He Tank was fine in this whole incident and was picked up the day of Quinn's death. He was nearing retirement age already, so they decided that it was not in his best interest to try to assign him to a new handler. And a fellow police officer and his wife, his wife being a veterinarian, they adopted Tank and he lived out his golden years running around a large farm. All right. We just want to thank you guys again for listening yet another week. We appreciate all the support we're getting. I want to give some shout outs to our Patreon supporters, to Alicia and to Amber. Thank you guys so much. Also to Dina from the Twisted Philly podcast. Thank you for your support. Roseanne and Rebecca H. We appreciate everything you guys do for us. And to some of our wonderful five-star reviewers, Seafault007, Melzords, MCM1975, ZombieCat666, be Kind Callie, MJ's Mom, and Camille1987. Again, thank you for taking the time to leave those reviews. I know iTunes doesn't always make it easy, and we appreciate that you thought enough of us to go out there and do that. You can find us on Facebook. We have a page where we post our episodes, but most things happen in our group. We've had some great conversations going on lately, as always. Uh, feel free to join the group and lurk or jump in and start posting with us. We are on Twitter at InsightfulPod, and I generally monitor the Twitter feed, so there's lots of pregnancy-related posts these days. Allie is on Instagram at InsightPod. If you want to email us to get in touch with us directly, it's InsightfulPod at gmail.com. We answer every email we hope. Sometimes we get a little bogged down, and hopefully we're not missing anyone. So we'll see you guys again next week. 